through this life with its many and various challenges and trials, we can look forward to the day when we will be gathered on your throne and praise you forevermore. Until that day comes, God, help us to live faithfully, help us to live the life you have called us to live for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. So in, in June of 1812, the United States and Great Britain went to war in the very creatively named War of 1812. And that war doesn't get talked about as much as some of the other wars in U.S. history, but it was a, a big deal. And the outcome didn't always look great for the United States. Right? At one point in that war, the British were able to invade Washington, D.C. and burn the U.S. Capitol building and burn the presidential residence and many other government buildings. Right? Just imagine if that happened today. Like some foreign power came into Washington, D.C. and burned the Capitol, burned the White House. That would be a huge deal. And that happened in 1812. And the final major battle of the War of 1812 was fought 
in January of 1815. There was the Battle of New Orleans. At the Battle of New Orleans, there were roughly 4,500 American soldiers stationed inside of the city, and they faced off against about 8,000 British troops who were seeking to take the city. So the Americans were outnumbered nearly two to one. And yet the Americans held off the British in that battle, and in fact, it was extremely one-sided. In total, there were about 300 American casualties in that battle, while the British suffered nearly 2,500 casualties. And due to the kind of overwhelming nature of that victory, the general in charge of the American troops in that battle, Andrew Jackson, became a well-known public figure, and he later used that fame to become president. And while we don't think about the War of 1812 that much now, at the time, the people thought of it as a kind of a second war of independence. Right? It was kind of the last time they fought the British once and for all. And the day it ended, January 8th, was celebrated as a major American holiday on par with July 4th up until the Civil War. But here's what I think is probably the most interesting fact about the Battle of New Orleans, at least to me. The Battle of New Orleans was fought 15 days after British and American diplomats signed the Treaty of Ghent to end the war. The Treaty of Ghent was signed on Christmas Eve, 1814. And this battle was fought January 8, 1815. But this treaty was signed in Ghent, Belgium. And because it's a pre-telephone, pre-email, pre-telegraph, pre-anything world, word hadn't reached the soldier fighting in this battle in time to prevent the battle. And that just sort of a stark reminder of how much like, communication had changed, how much modern communication had changed the way we live and exist in this world. My wife and kids are out of town right now. They're over in Minnesota. But before the kids went to bed last night, I like pulled up my iPad and FaceTimed with them, and I was able to see them and talk to them instantaneously. Like even though they're 300 miles away, I kind of felt almost like we were together in the same room. Right? Like Elijah was trying to give me kisses through the phone. It was all like very cute. Like we could we could communicate like at the speed of light. But for most of history, communication happened at the speed of a horse or the speed of a ship, and no faster. And one of the implications of that is that if you wanted to make plans with someone who lived far away, you would have a lot of forethought and pre-planning that went into how you're going to connect with them. Because you couldn't just show up and come up on your cell phone and say, hey, come pick me up. A lot of foreplanning was required. And in today's passage of the book of Philippians, we see Paul doing that kind of foreplanning. We see Paul laying out for the Philippians his future travel plans and his hope to visit them in the future. Let's read this passage together. We're in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Paul writes this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looked out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. 
because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longed for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor, and honor people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourself could not give me. So as I mentioned, Vanessa and my wife and our kids are not here this morning because they are over in Minnesota. And the reason they're over in Minnesota is that the senior pastor, Pastor Gerald, of the church I was at before I came here is is retiring this morning. It's his last Sunday this morning. They're having a celebration for him afterwards. And so Vanessa and the kids went back to be a part of that. I worked under him for three years as a family pastor. And one of the things that I will always be thankful for with Pastor Gerald is how he was helpful and supportive in me pursuing the opportunity to come here to Three Lakes and be a pastor here. When I told him about the possibility of coming here, he, he didn't bemoan the fact that it would mean him losing staff and he had to find someone new. Like he was fully supportive of, of me pursuing the opportunity to come here. And he helped me in many ways, especially in my last couple months there when I knew I was coming here, to with knowing what it would mean to be a senior pastor. And one of the things we talked about pretty extensively was kind of sermon preparation and how, to, how things, like how do you get into a rhythm of preparing a sermon week after week, week in and week out. And I remember like one of the things he told me right, was that like some weeks, Writing a sermon is going to feel easy and straightforward. You can just look at the passage for that week and it'll just kind of click and you'll know what you want to say from that passage. But other weeks, it'll be a challenge. It'll be daunting. You'll feel like you have no idea what you want to communicate from the passage. And I've found that in my three years doing this now to be incredibly true. There's some weeks, preparing a sermon feels relatively easy. It, the passage is there, it makes sense. It's pretty easy. But some weeks it's more difficult. And it can be easy or difficult for for different reasons. Sometimes it's easy because, like the sermon two weeks ago, the passage is just all about Jesus. It's all about praise and extolling how great Jesus is. And that's an easier passage to preach because Jesus is great and worthy of praise. And so you can preach that. Other times it's relatively easy because, like the sermon last week, the, the passage is really practical. It applies to our lives so easily that it just lends itself to a sermon. When Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing, like, it's a pretty easy lesson to apply to our own lives. And therefore, it's a relatively easy passage to preach. As a side note, 
Let me just remind you that that is what Paul said last week, to do everything without grumbling or arguing. And I remind you that because sometimes after you hear a sermon, it's really easy to try to put something into practice for a day or two or three, but then kind of forget about it as time goes on. Right? So maybe like the rest of last Sunday, you heard that sermon, and you're like, I'm going to really be good about not complaining. Maybe on Monday did a pretty good job too, but then Tuesday something happened at work and started to go downhill, and you find yourself grumbling more and more as the week went on. So this is just... Little reminder that those words are still there, they're still in the Bible. Still be doing everything without grumbling or arguing. And so I just even though that's not what this sermon is about, I just encourage you to keep striving to live the life that is marked by a lack of grumbling, a lack of complaining. That's an easy passage to preach. In fact, it's so easy I felt the need to preach a mini version of it again this morning. But there's other times that Writing a sermon is more challenging. Sometimes writing a sermon is challenging because like, the passage itself is just complicated and it's not clear what the author is saying. Sometimes it's challenging because what the author says is very clear, but it's not a very popular message. But today's passage is hard for a different reason. Today's passage is hard because like, the words that Paul writes are so personal they seem relevant only to his own situation. Right? It's a little bit hard to see at first how we can take these words from Paul making travel plans with the Philippians and apply them to our own lives. We go from a passage that extols the glory of Jesus to travel plans. Right? It seems a little mundane. As one commentator puts it, he writes this, after the theologically rich language of Chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, we are surprised suddenly to encounter two paragraphs whose primary concern seems to be the travel plans of Paul and his co-workers. Why would Paul include such mundane information at this point in the letter? Why this sudden introduction of a passage, which as Karl Barth says, contains no direct teaching? Why is the passage here, Paul? And yet... These words are in the Bible. In another one of Paul's letters, a letter he wrote to Timothy, Paul said that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That includes this passage. So I trust that, while it may not be immediately clear at some of the other passages in this book, but why this is here, like I trust that God has things for us to learn in, in this passage. Let's just take a closer look at this passage together and see if we can see what God would have us learn. And if there's one thing I think we can learn from Paul's situation here, what all that Paul is going through is this. There is great value in surrounding yourself with people that model and who embody Christ-like humility and service. If there's one thing you can take from this, is that there's value and you should surround yourself with people who model what it looks like to live like Christ. People who model what it looks like to serve others well. We see Paul surrounded by those types of people in this passage. Paul writes here in glowing terms about Timothy and about Epaphroditus, and it's clear that Paul has been deeply blessed by having these men in his life. 
But in addition to like, being thankful for them personally, Paul also holds them up to the Philippians as model for them to emulate. Like, it becomes clear as the book goes on that there's some division in the church in Philippi. Like, we don't know exactly what it's about, but there's some division in the church. Right? The people in that church are not always acting in humility. That's why humility... Humility is such a huge theme throughout this book. Paul is trying to push them and urge them to live humbly, to put aside these differences. One of the ways he does that is by holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples to be emulated. So Timothy and Epaphroditus are are both friends to Paul. And they're also examples of Christ-like living that Paul can point to. And we all need people like that in our lives. Right? We need people who support us and help us in our time of need. We need people who care for us and who bear our burdens for us. We need godly friends like Paul and Epaphroditus. We also all need people we can look to and emulate. We need people who will be in our lives to encourage us to live Christ-like lives. We need people who are willing to call us out when we fall short. People who we can confess to and who we can be open with and who we can trust to show us grace in our weakness. We all need people like Timothy and Epaphroditus in our lives. Both as friends and as examples. So in the rest of our time together this morning, I just want to walk through the passage and see what virtues Timothy and Epaphroditus have that Paul highlights. I'll just look at what makes them so worthy of being held up as examples. My hope is that as we read this, as we look at this passage together, we'll be spurred toward becoming more like Timothy and Epaphroditus ourselves, and it'll be spurred toward finding people in our own lives that we can surround ourselves with, who we can be close with, who model for a Christ-like behavior. Let's start by looking at what Paul has to say about Timothy. <clears throat> in verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about him. So remember, if, if Paul writes this, he is in prison, probably in Rome, so it's about 500 miles from Philippi, and he is no way of knowing what's going on with the Philippians unless someone goes there and tells them. Right? There's no FaceTiming to see how things are going. So he hoped to send Timothy to Philippi to find out what's going on and then have Timothy come back and report back to him. Before he sends Timothy, he wants the Philippians to know why he values Timothy so highly. And so in verse 20, he says this, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. And that word translated like him there actually means of like soul. Timothy is like-souled with Paul. He is like-minded in deep way. They're almost like platonic soulmates. They share the similar soul. They have this deep bond between them. They are of like soul. Along with going to the, the celebration for Pastor Gerald, another thing Vanessa and my kids are going to do while they're in Minnesota, they're going to spend time with, with our friends, the Peterson family. 
And we met Bill and Mandy, the husband and wife, while we were in college in Eau Claire. And they've been a constant in our lives ever since then. When we first moved to the Twin Cities after seminary, we lived with them for a year. When we go visit the Twin Cities, they are the people we always see. They're often people we stay with while we're there. They've just become a constant in our lives. Like oftentimes when you're a couple and you're trying to make friends with other couples, it can be tricky because like either the wives hit it off well, but the husbands are kind of indifferent, or, or the husband get along really well, but the wives don't quite click the same way. Or in our case, like everyone loves Vanessa, but they're stuck with me as part of the deal. <laughs> right. Both Bill and Mandy, Vanessa and I both love Bill. We both love Mandy, and like hanging out with them is fun and it's easy. But we're also capable of having deeper, more meaningful conversations with them as well. And for me personally, with Bill, like there's probably no one in my life who has the same who has the same level of overlap of interest with. Like we just are interested in a lot of the same things. There's no one who I click with on a personality level as much as Bill. All that to say, like, Bill and Manny are, for us, what, what Timothy was to Paul. They are of like soul with us. When we were leaving the cities to move here, one of the, the hardest parts of it was the thought of no longer living near Bill and Mandy. And, and also the fear that we wouldn't be able to find friendships like that when we came here. That was especially true for me as, as someone who's kind of slower to open up, slower to build friendships, slower to feel comfortable and make friends. Like, of the fear. Right? But God has been gracious to us in providing friendships like that for us here as well. Maybe not the same depth yet because you can't replicate living together four years in college and living in the same house for a year in you know, three short years. But like, God has been gracious in giving us friends like that here as well. That kind of friendship, that like-souled friendship, it's an absolute gift. It's my encouragement is that you would seek that kind of friendship. If there are people in your life now who are that kind of friend, then embrace and foster that friendship and don't take it for granted. And if you don't have someone you feel like falls into that category of being of like soul with you, then seek it out. Obviously, not everyone is going to be like-souled with you. That's the kind of connection that you can't force. But I think there are some tangible steps that you can take if you're seeking and looking for this kind of friendship. The first of those steps is simply to, to pray and ask God to raise up the kind of friend for you. When we were moving here, one of my most fervent prayers was that God would provide that kind of friend for me. If I'm being honest, like it felt kind of childish sometimes. Like, can I please have a friend? Like, it didn't feel weird. But I prayed that prayer often, and God has been gracious to answer that prayer. I think the second tangible step you can take in developing these kind of friendships is to be the one who takes initiative. If there's someone you see who you think may fall into this category of being of like soul with you, then Take the initiative in building that friendship. Invite them to dinner. Invite them to have coffee with you. Invite them to join you in some task or activity. And truthfully, I'm, I'm terrible at this. One of the many reasons I'm thankful for Vanessa is that she's way better at 
initiating things than I am, and so I get to come along for the ride. And so I feel a little hypocritical saying you should seek to initiate these kind of friendships, but it is the way friendships are formed. By being vulnerable, by being the one who invites and who initiates. If you're looking for the kind of friendship, I'd encourage you to, to step out and ask and initiate friendship with someone. And the final step I think you can take to, to begin forming these kinds of friendships, these kind of like-souled connections, is to make sure that you're working on becoming the kind of person that others want to be friendships, friends with. The kind of friendship is rooted in shared values and concerns. And Paul says that the thing about Timothy that makes him like sold with him is that Timothy shows genuine concern for the welfare of others. Paul goes on to say, For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Timothy looked out for the welfare of others. Timothy has proven himself to Paul. And that word proved has these undertones of, of having been tested and then persevered through the testing. Timothy has shown himself faithful to Paul. Who wouldn't want to be friends with that kind of person? Last week we looked at the command to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as much as we're about salvation by grace through faith and not by works, Paul makes it clear that there is a place for working to become more like Christ. And if you put in that work, if you become more like Christ, you'll naturally find yourself becoming more like-minded, more like-souled with fellow Christians. That desire for, for Christ-likeness serves then as a rock-solid foundation upon which to build this kind of friendship. To seek to find yourself a Timothy, someone who you feel like-souled with. In contrast to Timothy, Paul doesn't seem to have quite the same level of, of personal connection with Epaphroditus, but that doesn't mean he doesn't, it doesn't mean he doesn't value him. In verse 25, Paul says, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So this man Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippians from Philippi to deliver a monetary gift to Paul. And apparently somewhere along the way on his travels, he, he got sick. So in verses 26 and 27, we read, For he longed for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. And again, we see like this, one of the trials of lack of communication back then. Like somehow word had gotten back to the Philippians, probably through a courier of some kind, that Epaphroditus was sick. But they hadn't had any updates about his condition since then. It had been months since they had heard about Epaphroditus' welfare. And in a day before antibiotics and modern medicine, many illnesses could lead to death. And so the 
Philippians were left kind of uncertain about the well-being of Epaphroditus. So Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back so that they can see that he is healthy and well. One thing that's worth noting here in verse 27 is that God has mercy on Epaphroditus by healing him, and in so doing it, it spared Paul sorrow upon sorrow, he said. In this book, Paul has made a big deal about rejoicing in the midst of trial. He says to die is gain. He rejoices when, when Christ is preached, even if it's at his personal expense. But what this verse shows us is that Paul, Paul's rejoicing is not a blind optimism. Paul has space for sorrow even as he rejoices. Paul can experience sorrow even while he's still rejoicing in Christ. He says, if Epaphroditus had died, I would have suffered sorrow upon sorrow. But even in the midst of that sorrow, he would have still been able to rejoice in Christ. Like Our faith in Christ does not mean we don't ever feel sorrow. It doesn't mean we have to put on a fake, happy face all the time. Our faith in Christ doesn't mean we never mourn. It does mean, though, that we, we mourn with our eyes firmly fixed on the hope we have in Christ. That even though this world is broken and sorrowful, there is coming a day when Jesus will return and set all things right. And so we mourn, but not at those without hope. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But we don't act like we don't feel pain. We don't feel sorrow. We embrace it and view it through the lens of Christ. Paul goes on to say of Epaphroditus in verse 28. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So Paul is eager to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, so that they can... They can see that he is alive and well. But he also wants to send Epaphroditus back so he can serve as a model to them for how to serve with humility. In a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll get to the passage in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model... Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And Paul's including Epaphroditus as one of the us that they have as a model. Paul tells the Philippians to look to Epaphroditus as an example of how to live. Epaphroditus is willing to risk death to bring the Philippian gift to Paul. He's willing to humbly serve in whatever way he could. He was a model worth emulating. In your bulletin, there's a quote from the pastor Dennis Johnson where he says this about Epaphroditus. But Paul has another not-so-ulterior motive in sending Epaphroditus home. The Philippians need another human role model to show them in a man whom they knew well, 
what it means in the nitty-gritty of everyday life to share the mindset of Christ so thoroughly that one is ready to serve to the point of death, following the Savior's footsteps. At the Philippians, we'll see the submission of Jesus the servant reflected in Paul's readiness to let God direct his plans and the selflessness of Jesus and Timothy's concern for their well-being above his own. So they will observe Epaphroditus, one of their own, a man who was prepared to sacrifice his very life for the cause of Christ. Paul holds Epaphroditus up as a model of what it means to sacrificially serve others. We each need people like that in our lives. We need people who model for us what it looks like to live like Christ. So again, I just encourage you to seek out people who are like that, people who point you to Christ, people who show you how to live like Christ. That may be people you know, maybe people who you read biographies of, it may be people you hear about other ways, but find people who are living Christ-like lives and seek to emulate them. Make them your example. Of course, our, our greatest example in all of this is Jesus himself, who came and lived among us, who died in our place, who lived without sin, so that he could die to forgive us of our own sins, by going to the cross for us. And our ultimate goal then is to, to seek to live like him, to live the life he has called us to live. The first step in that is to trust in him and then to seek day after day to grow in our Christ-likeness. If you're here you never trusted him, then I'd urge you to do that. Not to try to just live a morally upright life, but to trust in Jesus. And for us, those of us who are here who have trusted in Christ, I'd urge you to find examples what it looks like to live like Christ and seek to emulate them. But above all, keep your eyes fixed on Christ as your great example. And seek to live the life that He has called you to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. We Thank you for the people you have brought into each of our lives to be friends to us, to be examples to us, to be models for us. Father, I pray for those here who may feel lonely, who may feel a lack of the kind of friendship Paul had with Timothy, that you would provide that friend for them. That you would give them boldness and wisdom about people to initiate friendships with. That we could all experience what it's like to have a, a friend of like soul.
Father, I pray too for each of us that you would place before us models and examples of what it looks like to live a Christ-like life. Would you make us keenly aware of the areas we need to grow in ourselves and then help us to find people who can model for us what that growth looks like. Father, we thank you for the way you knit all of us together in the body of Christ for that connection fellowship we have with one another because of the work of Christ. Would we not take that for granted? Would we not lose sight of all the ways you blessed us with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Father, would we be like Timothy? Would we look out for the interests of others above our own? Would we be like Epaphroditus, who is willing to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of others and for the sake of advancing the gospel. Father, would you be at work in our lives this morning, throughout this week, as we seek to become more and more like Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from here this morning, would you go thankful for the ways God has brought people into your lives and seeking to surround yourself more and more with people who point you to Jesus. You are dismissed. sounded good. Yeah, my voice is not able to sing high anymore. <laughs>